In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Uh, blessed feast of the Nativity and uh, the circumcision, which was just a few days ago. Uh, the day that this is being recorded is Saturday, which is January the 16th, which is the feast of the consecration of the Church of St. Macarius the Great. Uh, I just wanted to wish you guys uh, many, many blessed feasts. Um, we are continuing in our mini-series on Christology today. Um, again, please feel free to reach out if there are any questions that you might have. Um, today we're gonna start speaking about a very famous work by St. Athanasius the Great, uh, which is called On the Incarnation. It's a very popular book uh, to read this time of year. And when people read it thinking that they're going to find some reflections on the Feast of the Nativity, uh, they find something rather unexpected, um, and that's that it, it doesn't really speak about the infancy narratives uh, almost at all about uh, Christ as as a as an infant as a child. Um, so, what does it speak about? Uh, why is it called on the incarnation if it's not speaking about that? Uh, and why has this book proven to be so fundamental to expressing our faith since it was written? Let's let's see what we might be able to gather from, from this. Okay, um, so this is the uh, one of the, the opening paragraphs in, in the book. Um, and it's uh, St. Athanasius speaking about why it is that he uh, is uh, writing about this book or about this topic. He says, well then my friend and true lover of Christ, let us next with pious reverence tell of the incarnation of the word and expound his divine manifestation to us, which the Jews slander and the Greeks mock, but which we ourselves adore, so that from the apparent degradation of the word, you may have ever greater and stronger piety towards him. For the more he is mocked by unbelievers, the greater witness he provides of his divinity, because what men cannot understand is impossible, he shows to be possible. And what men mock as unsuitable by his goodness, he renders suitable. And what quibbling men laugh at as human by his power, he shows to be divine, overthrowing the illusion of idols by his apparent degradation through the cross, and invisibly persuading those who mock and do not believe to recognize his divinity and power. Know what he's saying here. He's going to speak about the incarnation of the word, and to elaborate on the manifestation of God to us, which the Jews slander and the Greeks mock. Where do we hear this verbiage? It's not in re relation to what we usually think of when we're speaking about the incarnation. Um, this is a very direct reference to 1 Corinthians one twenty-three. If anyone recalls, what is it that's said to be a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles? What is it that he's saying here? as what the Jews slander and the Greeks mock. Uh, St. Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So in speaking of the incarnation, right from the start of the book, St. Athanasius is not pointing towards the issues we would suppose he would speak about. It's not about the Holy Virgin Mary. It's not about a dissection of the flesh that he took uh, what the components of, of uh, the human body are, or uh, if uh, 
you know, he has a, a, a rational soul, etc. All of these other things that end up developing later on in that century as, as points of contention. Uh, it's, it's all a defense of the cross. Is Christ mocked by the unbelievers for being God who took the form of man? Look at the Greeks and their belief who show gods in all kinds of physical forms. Is this what the Greeks mock? Or rather, do they mock the perceived weakness of the one we worship on the cross? Let's keep this in mind throughout our talk on Christology because the center, again, must be the cross. See the number of descriptors above attesting to this. Quote, the apparent degradation. Uh, men mock as unsuitable his goodness. What quibbling men laugh at as human by his power, he shows to be divine. And then the very direct reference to the cross right there, his apparent degradation through the cross. The scope of the incarnation is not solely his having taken flesh from the virgin, which did happen and is something to be marveled at and something to be celebrated. And that's why, uh, you know, we have, we have a feast of the nativity to celebrate that. But if this, uh, if this was all that was done, how does that have any bearing on me? How does that have any importance for me? It finds the epitome of its importance on the cross. And this is what St. Athanasius is going to be developing in this book. Um, before continuing, I want to highlight an important concept. Uh, and that's that things are not what they seem. And we see that quite uh, apparently in, in the Gospels, um, when there's a lot of confusion concerning who Christ is, but even the interpretation of events uh, from a non-Christian standpoint. And that, that's not simply to say from a Jewish standpoint or from a Greek standpoint. Uh, that is a standpoint that does not have Christ as its lens by which they could view these events. Um, things are not what they seem. We oftentimes see the cross much in the same way that the Jews and the Greeks do. It's an exhibition of weakness. The Son of God incarnate, suffering and dying, being exposed. But the truth of this from a Christian perspective is the strength in the weakness. We see this um, very apparently in uh, St. Paul's own life, and this is something that he attests to uh, when he's speaking about himself, which uh, he doesn't do very often, uh, but in 2 Corinthians, he's, he's giving this, um, this section, he's dedicating this section towards speaking about this. Um, and it sounds like it's, it's so intimate and private, but really what he's speaking about is something that is so important and pivotal for all of us. And we're gonna see why it is that that's the case. So again, uh, in 2 Corinthians, St. Paul says, and to keep me from being too elated by the abundance of revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I besought the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 
My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. I will all the more, more gladly boast of my weaknesses, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Look at what it is that he's saying. It's actually, it's very beautiful. It, 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 mind you, he does not say, for when I am weak and overcome the weakness, then I am strong. Uh, it's not that when, you know, when I go through these trials and I come out from them on the other side, then I have, uh, you know, developed a sort of experience and now I am strong. That's not what he says. He says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. A very apparent contradiction. But again, things are not what they seem. Note what St. Paul is saying here. The power of God is made perfect in weakness. The manifestation of his grace is in what we see as weakness. This isn't just something to make us feel better when we're struggling or when we're suffering. It's a reflection in our lives of a fundamental truth about God. And he displayed that truth on the cross. In his utter weakness is displayed his divine power, not power as we think of it. We think the same way that the people on the ground thought in front of the cross. If he has power, let him show it. If he can, he should come down. If he wants, call down legions of angels to fight. That's how we see power. It's also the issue with how we see death. We see it as an end. The early church, St. John writing his gospel, St. Ignatius of Antioch in the late first century, early second century, St. Irenaeus, who comes from that same school, uh, the school of St. John uh, in the second century, they all see death as birth. Again, what we see as weakness is power. What we see as death is birth. Now think about what St. Athanasius is trying to highlight for us concerning incarnation. How does Christ become incarnate? Or let's say from a theological perspective, how does Christ become fully man? It's on the cross. Through his death, he becomes the firstborn among the dead. That's what we say, right? He's the firstborn among the dead. That's shown again in St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Uh, he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That's not just to say that he is um, the first one to rise from the dead, right? So that, you know, now, uh, you know, everyone that will come after him, he's, he's sort of the, the, the first one that's setting this course, and then we're all going to follow. What he's saying is, is that the one who has truly, finally lived, the one who has actually become fully man, the one who has exhibited what a full man is in totality, is Christ on the cross. Through his death, he's born. Again, it's very contradictory, right? It's not something that we're expecting because we're, we're expecting, especially when we hear uh, a talk like this, or we read a book like this on the incarnation, we're going to speak a lot about uh, the beginning chapters of Matthew and Luke, um, and we're going to focus about things that happen in Christ's infancy, but that's not 
the focus. The focus is, where is it that Christ is shown to be fully man? And this is very apparent in the Gospel of St. John. The, the, the uh, manifestation of himself as fully man and as fully God is on the cross. So what is death to the world is life. It's birth. And the proof of this life is in his resurrection. And so let's see what St. Athanasius says is a very strong proof of the resurrection. In, in the book on the incarnation, he, by the way, this is the uh, sort of the older version of it from St. Vladimir's. Um, there's a new one as well that was translated just a, a few years ago. Uh, that's also wonderful to be able to go through. And if you read it, you get to this section that says that you know, St. Athanasius is going to provide very strong proofs of the resurrection. Let's see. Let's see what it is that he says. Before the divine sojourn of the Savior, before the divine journey uh, of the Savior, even the holiest of men were afraid of death and mourned the dead as those who perish. But now that the Savior has raised his body, Death is no longer terrible, but all those who believe in Christ tread it underfoot as nothing and prefer to die rather than to deny their faith in Christ, knowing full well that when they die, they do not perish, but live indeed and become incorruptible through the resurrection. This is his proof that there are martyrs. That's the proof of the resurrection. I remember reading this when I was much younger. And I didn't understand the depth of this argument. I thought in my ignorance that this was a very weak argument. I wanted some kind of other proof that we like to think of, right? A non-theological proof of the resurrection. That show me some sort of uh, physical evidence of the resurrection. Let me see something. Let me, uh, uh, you know, let's let's disregard what it is that was written um, from uh, from the apostles in in the Bible. Let's see what it is that you know. Uh, modern science might be able to provide for us or something like this. What is the, what is the strength of the proof of this? And he says the strength of the proof is martyrdom. People die for all kinds of things that they believe in. How is this any different? And we even use that, that word um, very commonly uh, for people that are, are martyrs, right? You can be a martyr for a cause. Um, other religions use this in, in all kinds of various ways, right? Um, how is this any different? It is the martyr, which is translated to mean the witness. That's what martyrdom or martyr means, witness. Uh, it's the martyr that testifies to the resurrection. They see death as actual life because it means that they get to have Christ incarnate in them. He becomes incarnate in them through death. Not because they simply die. It's because they die a death that shows such utter weakness. Think of the stories in the, in the Synexarium when they go into great detail about the tortures of the martyrs. And they say that you know, there's people that are stretched out on these uh, wheels and um, their skin is flailed uh, and uh, it's, it's, their skin is flayed rather and uh, all, all of these kinds of very gruesome things and they're putting burning oil, et cetera, et cetera. And it's all so gruesome. Why? Why, why, do, why do we recount that? It's to show the depth 
of what the world sees as weakness as being where grace is sufficient, for his strength is made perfect in our weakness. And his strength is displayed on the cross where he appears to be the weakest. And those who die in Christ are those who are in his body. He abides in them and they abide in him. That's through baptism and martyrdom. To live is to die in Christ. We'll see in, in Romans 6, 3 and 8. This is what he says, St. Paul. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. So see, see what the, what, what's being developed here, right? See, see what St. Athanasius is, is laying out and what St. Paul was saying and how the church has always seen this. It is that when we uh, display our weakness in terms of the way that, that the world sees it, that weakness is actually strength if it's in Christ because Christ displayed that perfect weakness on the cross. And we enter into that weakness through our own suffering. And the epitome of that is in martyrdom. And, and we, we get sort of the, 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 the kickoff of this, the starting point of this, the majority of us, because the majority of us have not experienced uh, this kind of suffering, and certainly none of us have experienced martyrdom. Um, we experience this in baptism. This is how we die. It's, it's, a, it's a, a, a proof of our death in Christ so that we might live in him. And, and the rest of Romans 6 is speaking about how we die to sin so that we might live in Christ. So this is what, what we have to keep in mind here. When, when we see martyrs, the reason why there is such a phenomenal um, display of the proof of the resurrection is because they are witnessing to a truth that is even lost on many of us. Why is it that the church counts the martyrs as, as sort of the highest class, uh, class of saints? Why is it that when, when we see, and, and as you can see here, I've included a, a, an icon of the 21 martyrs of Libya. Why is it that, that uh, you know, uh, there's all kinds of other people that um, can live very holy lives and display all kinds of miracles when they're uh, alive in the flesh and then uh, after they repose? And then there's decades and sometimes centuries until they're recognized as saints. But for martyrs, it's immediate. You see martyrs and then suddenly we see churches being named after them and we see icons uh, uh, being constructed for them. Why is that? It's because the martyr, who is the witness, is witnessing to the truth of the resurrection. They see that true life is in death in Christ. And this is something that they, they show in the proof of their own flesh. They give up their own lives so that they can show this. That's the belief that they have. But it's not only a belief in terms of, you know, what is it that I can stand by in terms of my belief? Because again, many people die for their beliefs. It is an understanding that this is what Christ himself did. That the display of my weakness is not actually weakness, right? The display of the cross, which is folly to the Greeks, or folly to the Jews and the Greeks mock. Why? 
because they see that and all they see, what the whole world sees, and even what many of us Christians see when we see this is weakness. When we watch these uh, movies even uh, about Christ, our focus is entirely on, on the weakness of it, which is great, but it's the weakness that, that is the display of the actual strength. We see his strength perfected in weakness and the, the perfect strength, the perfect strength of God is apparent in the weakness of the cross. And that occurs again and again and again in each person who partakes in baptism and in each person who suffers martyrdom. Because they display what the world sees as weakness, but through the lens of one who has Christ in front of them to be able to interpret the actual events that are taking place, this is strength. This is divine strength. So that when we think of God as, as strong and powerful, we have in our minds a certain, a certain thought of what that's supposed to look like. I'd venture to say, I think many of us have an idea in mind that when we speak about God coming in his glory and his power and the strength with which he's going to come is that he's, he's basically going to appear as many of the Greek gods did, right? Like the, the, the concept of Zeus, for example, that he's going to come in power and authority uh, in this way. Um, and uh, and the, the, the lightning and the thunder, these are things that are indicating something else that, that I think is entirely lost upon us, which is that the perfect display of his strength was in the weakness of the cross. That is God showing us who he is. Not one phase of him that then changes completely differently uh, in the future or something that uh, is so uncharacteristic of him. This is so characteristic of him that it teaches us what we must do in our own lives. We'll conclude with these two last slides uh, to introduce the idea of the creation and man. Um, and then we'll continue next time with uh, more of this book on the incarnation. St. Athanasius says, God who has dominion over all, when he made the race of men through his own logos, saw that the weakness of their nature was not capable by itself of knowing the creator or of taking any thought of God in that he was uncreated, whereas they had been made from nothing. And he was incorporeal, but men had been fashioned here below with a body. And he saw the creature's complete lack of understanding and knowledge of him who made them. So having pity on the human race, in that he is good, he did not leave them destitute of knowledge of himself, lest even their own existence should be profitless for them. But for what advantage would there be for those who had been made if they did not know their own maker? Or in what way would they be rational, being unaware of the logos of the father by whom they had also been created? For indeed, they would in no way have differed from irrational creatures if they had known nothing more than terrestrial things. God does not want man to simply focus on the things of the world, the earthly things like all of the rest of the animals. Out of his love for mankind, he gives them knowledge about himself. I want to just highlight one line here. This is an incredibly dense paragraph, but there's one line that 
I want to highlight because uh, we hear one of the words in this paragraph in a certain way now because of our own contemporary understanding. And it's different when St. Athanasius wrote it. Um, he says in, in one of the, the last lines there, he says, in what way would they be rational being unaware of the logos of the father by whom they had also been created? Now the word rational uh, in Greek is logiki. In what way would they be logiki, being unaware of the logos of the Father by whom they had also been created? How could they be like the logos, being unaware of the logos? How could they be rational, being unaware of the rationality of the Father? That's what logos means, right? It doesn't just mean word. It means reason or rationality. So how is it that we could be like Christ? Animals are irrational because they only know earthly things. Think about what's being said. If you don't know God, you're not rational because he is rationality. If all you know are only the things of the world, then you're just like the animals. To know Christ is to be rational. And he continues, and why would God have made creatures by whom he did not wish to be known? Therefore, lest this should happen, since God is good, he bestowed on them of his own image, our Lord Jesus Christ, and he made them according to his own image and likeness, in order that understanding through such grace the image, I mean the logos of the Father, they might be able through him to gain some notion about the Father, and recognizing the Maker might live a happy and truly blessed life. Christ is the center. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the beginning. We think of the beginning as when man was made before the fall, and then the fall happens, etc., etc. The beginning of man is not that from a theological standpoint. The beginning of man is our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the beginning and the end. This is what he says. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. So our focus isn't on some other skewed timeline, right? Something that doesn't have Christ there or that we just go back and we reinsert him back into the past. That's not, that's not what's happening, right? Our center is Christ. And it's not only Christ. It's Christ on the cross. That's the center of history. That is how it is that we now must look back and forward to things so that we can understand what it is that we were made for. Otherwise, we don't know. And this is precisely what St. Athanasius is saying. So that we would be able to know God the Father, he made us in the image of the Son. And he names the Son, St. Athanasius names the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, which is interesting. I think that would throw some people off today because some people might think to themselves, I'll call him the Logos before he's incarnate. But then once he comes and he takes flesh, then we can call him our Lord Jesus Christ. But before then he's Logos. Once he takes flesh, he has this name, our Lord Jesus Christ. But the fathers don't think of it like that because they're not thinking of timelines in this way. They think of it as our Lord Jesus Christ is the one in whose image we are made, who is the Logos, right? But it is, his name is, our Lord Jesus Christ. His name is Jesus Christ, right? Or Jesus, rather, and his title is Christ and Lord, etc. Uh, 
but that that is who he is right we are made in the image of of him uh now what that means in terms of being made in the image and the likeness um, and what it means to have lost that that's what it is that we're going to be getting into next time um, again i know that this is dense but i hope that especially at this time when we're uh, just coming off of the feast of the nativity and we're quickly approaching uh, lent uh, though not too quickly this year it's actually rather rather late this year um, it gives us something for us to be able to focus on, to keep in mind. And that is at all times when we look upon Christ, we must look upon him as the crucified Christ who gives us knowledge, he gives us knowledge of himself and therefore knowledge of our own selves because we are made in his image. And he gives us knowledge as to what it is that it means to suffer and why we must suffer. And we'll be getting into that as well. Uh, please reach out uh, to me or any anyone else here uh, that is giving any talks or, or uh, Abuna Carlos or Abuna Andrew uh, to ask any questions about this and then hopefully we'll be able to, to get to it um, in our upcoming talks. Uh, please keep uh, the church in your prayer and everyone in your prayers. Um, and God willing, we will again once once again at some point very soon hopefully be able to pray with with one another and be able to actually have this kind of exchange uh in person uh to the glory of his name and glory be to god forever amen <laughs>